Hello, welcome to the How to Build a Sustainable Music Career and Collect All Revenue Streams podcast. I'm your host, Emily White. Today is episode 22, and we are covering the chapter, When Do I Need an Attorney, Business Manager, and or a Manager Defining an Artist Traditional Quote Team? And I'm super excited to have Force Media Management's uh, management's founder. I botched that, but you do so much more than that. Randy Nichols. Welcome, Randy. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat today. Absolutely. So I know that you didn't necessarily set out to be a manager, um, but before you start your journey, what did you study in college? Um. In college, I studied a major called arts management, which was kind of a a bogus major at the time, but (laughs) it allowed me to just kind of build what I wanted to, to kind of find my own path, which was good. That's amazing because I mentioned that and and we can, we'll get into your, your journey next, but I, I meet a lot of students who are like, oh, I can't be a manager. I wasn't a music business major. And it's like, well, like most people weren't. So um, that's interesting though. What you describe, even though you said it was kind of bogus, like what you describe arts management sounds like artist management. So yeah, it it makes perfect sense. And you know, I feel like nobody should study music business in college. I, I think there's so many better things you could learn to then go into music management if that's where you want to go. I just had to share that because no disrespect to all the brilliant music programs out there, and there are some great ones, but there's something to be said about learning other things and bringing that to music too. Well, you're going to break some hearts with some listeners on that because I know we have um, student listeners, although in in many ways I agree with you. Um, What do you think students should be studying if if they're not going to study music business and they want to do this stuff? I think they need to be learning marketing, management, psychology, yeah, um, startup, like just startup skills in general for startup businesses. I feel like there's just, there's a lot that you can learn. And I mean, that said, I don't want to knock any of the great music programs like Syracuse, NYU, USC, Drexel, Hofstra, University of Northern Vermont. There's so many great programs that I've spoken to that are doing tremendous work too. So I don't want to take anything away from all of those, but there's something to be said with coming in with fresh eyes. And it's something that sometimes bothers me in music is that people come in being told you're supposed to think a certain way. And I think in any business, if you come in and think fresh and don't do what everyone says you're supposed to do, you can be better off. A hundred percent. Um, Here's what I think about music business programs as a graduate of one and an educator sometimes at them. Um, I think it's an, if you know your ride or die music industry, which you were and I was, um, I think that it's a great opportunity to go out and get experience in the field and then bring it back in the classroom and talk about that with your classmates. Like you're building your network from day one. Like I was 17 years old in my freshman music industry one class and the kid next to me is my neighbor in Brooklyn, like 20 years later or whatever. Um, so I think there's, there's, there's value in that, but I will say, um, I mean, and I think there are some programs that teach this, but I suck at graphic design. And if someone would have told me like, even though you're not 
naturally good at this, if you can learn how to make a flyer or a poster or a graphic, like, I think that's some of the stuff you're saying is like, there's a lot of skills that you need to be a man, a, really just a modern business person, period. Yeah. Um, and that can be hard to get across in a classroom setting for sure. It's so funny you say that. I just have to share a really short story. Please. I spoke at a college that will remain nameless. So I don't want to disrespect them. But they had someone taking photos and doing video, and it was all staff members. And I said something to them, why don't you have students doing this? These are the skills that we need from our interns more than anything else. And it's just, it's so important. And I wish I had more of those skills, and I want everyone coming into my office. It's it's great when you know stuff about the industry, but you need to know those basic skills, too, because lots of us don't. A hundred percent. I love that. And I mean, we could seriously talk about that all day. Like the student yeah. I just talked to who was like, I want to work at a big management company like CAA, UTA or WME. I'm like, those are all booking agencies. So, <laughs> um, yeah. So I, you know, what we are saying though, is like, I guess don't freak out about your major, right? Because like I, I was ride or die music industry. And when I found out that that was a major, I was like, like I'd never even heard of Northeastern university, but I was like, I am going there. That is what I'm doing. Um, but yeah, it breaks my heart when I meet students who feel like, Oh, well, I'm not a music business major or whatever. And when I meet students who are ride or die music industry, but don't have that program at their school, sometimes they are even better because they are the ones out hustling because they feel like they need to outperform, you know, getting a degree that like, I feel weird saying this, that nobody really cares about because it is about the hands-on experience and making yourself indispensable, which is not really a question, but. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. And by the way, my day-to-day manager was amazing who works with me, went to Northeastern also. Yay. Well, we have, they may have told you, like, we have this co-op program. They really push interning. So, you know, we're talking about this stuff because, okay, so you, you were ride or die music industry in college. I know that you were doing a million things. Did you know what you wanted to do? Or were you just like, I love music. I live and breathe it. And I just have to be a part of it. I still don't know what I want to do. I didn't (laughs) know then. And I don't know now. I've just been on a journey that changes over time. When I was in college, one of the things that I looked to to do was intern for different types of companies. I interned for a management company, a record company, a radio station. I just kind of did a little bit of everything to get a feel to try to figure out where I wanted to go. And I still feel like I do that to some degree today. I do a lot of consulting, which we can get into later. But I just like to get a feel for different things and learn from it and try to find the best path of what I learn. A hundred percent. So you were going to shows growing up. Um, you were telling me before this podcast, you had a friend who was a Sony media rep um, or so- Sony college rep. I remember those days also. I was not one. But you said something about you were working parallel to a Sony college rep. So what, is, what yeah. does working parallel mean? Yeah, so I had a friend who, in college, this girl, Melissa Linsalato, who went on to tour with Oasis, coordinating tour press for them for their first two years. Yes, she's got such amazing stories. That's my favorite band. We just had a podcast listener message made saying she wants to talk about Noel Gallagher. So um, anyway, continue. My my poor friend left the music business more or less after that. It was she. I almost. Sorry to interrupt again. I don't know if this is bad to say. I. 
thought about interviewing Marcus Russell for this episode, who is their longtime manager, but I, no offense, Marcus, I love you. Like I wanted someone more modern. So that was you. Oh, well, well, thank you. But it's really funny because she loved her time and what she did, but I just have to share it because she was a badass. Like she grew up in the Bronx, tough girl, really smart. But man, that band was, that was a hard band to work with back yeah. then. Now she's a social worker, I believe in the Bronx. Wow. And, and handles that easier than working with the, um, the Gallagher brothers. Just sure. funny, funny side note. But um, she was a college rep for Sony when we were in school, and she was the rep on Long Island, and it meant that she had to go to different record stores, radio stations, shows, sometimes coordinating, taking bands to interviews, and she didn't have a car, so she needed a way to do it, and me and her became really good friends, and I kind of became her car, in a sense, to do all the things she needed to do, but what was really cool about it is I met all these artists managers, record company people. And it kind of started my path to wanting to work, really work in the business because I was doing a portion of her job, like no disrespect to her. She was awesome. But like standing side by side with her and talking to people with her, I learned a ton and it was just um, an amazing experience. And through that, I ended up getting an internship for a Sony music label. And that was kind of my first big internship starting my path in my career. How did you meet your Oasis friend? In college. Oh, cool. So you were, you were classmates yeah. or whatever. Yeah, I was one. I was a freshman. She was a sophomore. And her boyfriend was a guy named Rob McDermott, who went on sure. to manage Lincoln Park for probably 15 years. And he went to our school as well. I mean, that's the thing that people need to understand, too. I kind of referenced it. But it's just like, yeah, the people you're coming up with end up managing Lincoln Park or... Um, Man, I could talk about the Oasis thing all day, but just yeah. to, but seriously, just to exemplify like what she was dealing with and going through, like I know everything about Noel Gallagher and Oasis. I do not say that lightly. And then <laughs> when they put out that documentary a few years ago, I did not know, see if I can get the drug right, <laughs> that they went on stage at the Troubadour when like Live Forever was like happening. You know, they're getting traction on American radio. So they're playing the Troubadour in Los Angeles. I can only imagine how packed that is with like press, industry, whatever or whatever. And they were on Crystal Meth and had different <laughs> set lists and started playing different songs. And like the tour manager in me was so stressed out. So um yeah, that we I mean, I'm sure you've you know, worked with different difficult people in all sorts of scenarios, but that one was um, that. There's a reason why she's a social worker right now, and I bet she's damn good at it. She she is, but it's just really funny. I love that I'm talking about her for this long in this conversation too. She should have made it in this business, and you know, it's one of the things that people need to learn. Is there's yeah so many things that could get in the way of making it. She there was an A and R guy who's still around today, Michael Goldstone. She was a scout for Michael Goldstone in his prime right. at Epic. Like just everything right. And sometimes it just doesn't work too. Like I hate to say it, but there's, there's the sad stories and the, you know, the winning stories in this case. For sure. So, okay. You parlayed that into being a booking agent. Why don't you, why don't you share that? And you're honestly very smart strategy because I hear from students all the time, like I'm graduating soon. Where is their growth in the industry? And I'm always like, who cares? Focus on artists. They always need help, but you, you did have a smart strategy. So share that. Yeah. With so, so I was looking for an internship that I knew was going to be my last internship as my college career was ending and I was going to work. And 
I literally picked up the Polestar guide for booking because I decided booking was the last thing I wanted to do. I started with the letter A and worked my way through and called and mailed physical mailing because there wasn't email or internet yet then and reached out to all these companies saying I wanted to be an intern for them. But I, my focus was rather than just hitting every company, I looked for small companies that had artists that looked like they were about to break. And I, I wanted to go to a company where I knew they would need to hire more people and staff up quickly. So I went to this company called Artist and Audience was the one that gave me the first interview. And they had Nine Inch Nails, who was about to break, live at that time, who was about to break. Um, God, who else? There's so many others I'm forgetting right now. But I mean, just Nine, Nine Inch Nails too, alone. Would be massive. Yeah, Chemical Brothers and The Orbital, The Orb. Like they had just, they had an unbelievable roster. They were one of the best, you know, mid sized booking agencies of that era. And the company grew really quickly. We went from being in a little office in a townhouse to this giant floor next to the Beacon Theater. And the second I finished school, they hired me. You know, I did my last final and went to work that afternoon for my first day of full-time work because they needed people. And I knew they would look internally before looking externally if I was good. And the plan worked flawlessly. I love that. So that agency falls apart as things do in the music industry. I, I had a massive big job before I started my first company 13 years ago. So that's a reminder to people that this happens. It feels like a big deal at the time, but Randy's fine. I'm fine. Um, so tell us about that. So the agency falls apart and how did that lead to management? Yeah. So one of my clients at the agency was the ska reggae punk group called the Pilfers. Singer was probably like 15 years older than me, this Jamaican guy named Cooley Ranks. He was kind of like a tough guy, but also a sweetheart. And when I called him to tell him I'm no longer going to be a manager, uh, be an agent, he just turns to me on the phone and goes, all right, well, you're not the agent anymore. Now you're the manager. said, your first job is to find us an agent. And I just kind of listened to him because you do what Cooley Rank says. Like, that's the way he always was. I mean, this was a guy on stage. If he said jump, the entire room jumped, even if they didn't know who he was. Like, he just had this commanding thing about him. And I'd never really thought about being a manager. He just suddenly told me I was a manager and I've been a manager ever since. And every once in a blue moon, I'll run into him in New York City somewhere. And he's so proud of me and so excited. And he always just looks at me and goes, I told you you were going to be a manager. I'm like, yes, he did. Like, this is no question about it. But like, I've got much love for him. And he got me started on being a manager, even though I never planned to or necessarily wanted to. Here is what is brilliant about that. And maybe I'm biased because I have not parallel similar, but kind of a similar background. Like, I love that you hung out with your Sony rep street team, Oasis friend, um, a bunch in college, and then you were a booking agent. And to me, that gives you empathy not, not actually before empathy, it gives you an understanding of what those jobs and what those roles are. And then it also creates empathy as to what it's like on the other side of the inbox or the phone or whatever. It's one thing to be like, I'm going to be a manager. I'm going to be the man or the woman or whatever. But I just think it's, it's like, I, I, you know, there's a reason why, like, we don't have to get into this. And I don't even remember if you and I talked about this, but it's like, when I founded hashtag I voted festival, like, 
I can communicate to you about like live show stuff and it makes sense to you. And I'm going to guess that started with, you know, you being an agent. So I guess I don't really have a question, but to me, that's like, that's like the perfect background to become a manager because you're not just like rolling up your sleeves and setting out to do it, which people should do if they want to. But yeah. So how did, how did your background in those other areas support you in starting a management company almost 20 years ago? Yeah. So interestingly, before I became a manager, one of the first things I did when, when Cooley Ranks told me that I was their manager, I said, okay, well, I don't have a job right now. You don't have a tour manager. I'm going to go be your tour manager. Love it. And, and I jumped in the 15 passenger van and drove around the country with them for a month. So I thought it was really important that if I was going to be the manager and I was going to have a career around working with artists, that I really needed to understand what it was like to be on the road. And I talked to artists that have had great careers who never toured at the low level that I did with the Pilfers also. Like we stayed almost exclusively in nights in hotels, which most people listening to this probably have never heard of. But at the year I toured with them, we spent 20 or $30 a night for a hotel. They're probably like $50 a night now. And I bought an air mattress and slept on that every night because I didn't want to sleep on the beds or the floor in these rooms because they were disgusting. But you learn so much about life on the road, just driving a van and seeing what it's like and getting a feel for it and selling merchandise. To this day, I'm still kind of terrified of selling merch. Like I feel like I could do any job on the road other than high volume merch sales. Why are you terrified? I love that. Have you ever sold merch on the road for a band that sells a lot of merch? I did for many years, yeah. Well, now it's easy. Now that At Venue exists, which is a company I'm involved in, it's a lot easier. But um, managing the inventory and knowing how much is left and when you need to order and like all of that, everybody lives and dies by that merch money. And if you don't know that it's going to sell out in five days, if you need to order more merch and make sure that it shows up at the right venue to meet you and not a day late or a day early. Like there's just so many little pieces of that puzzle that can massively ruin a tour, which is why, you know, I'll mention real quickly this company at venue that I ended up getting involved with years later, built an entire software solution and app that helps the artists manage that. So you no longer have to have that fear that you once had. Or at least I have. So I have a couple of comments on that. First, maybe my bias is I was the Dresden Dolls tour manager when they were on the rise. And by the time I became their tour manager, we were able to hire Laura Keating, who became my best friend. And so she was focused on projections and random bank. It's not random to the people who live there, but bank holidays in Europe when we think it's a normal Tuesday and it's not. And I I will give massive credit to Wes Bockley at JSR Merchandising because even in the early days of the Dresden Dolls, he was all over us about projections. Um, But let me uh, say something about at venue and I do not consult or work with them in any way. I mean, like you, I get pitched music tech companies like, Every day. I mean, there was an era where it was like five times a day, right? And I felt like all these people were coming to me and solving problems I didn't have as a manager. And I will never forget 
I wish I remember who it was. <laughs> that feels weird to say after never forget. But someone from at venue pitched me in the lobby of San Fran Music Tech on at venue. And I was like, this is awesome. This is helpful. Way to go. You are actually solving a problem for people. So I just want to, um, yeah, completely, I, I completely agree with, agree with what you said about at venue. And let me add actually one more thing. Um, I talked to a, an aspiring tour manager once, uh, someone put me in touch with her and she said, Oh, I, you know, I guess I'll just suck it up and do merch for a while. And I was like, suck it up. Like the implication was like, she just wanted to skip that step. And it's like, yeah. if you don't have that experience. You're going to be a really crappy boss slash tour manager. If you don't understand why your merch person is having a meltdown because there's a bank holiday and they didn't, and their projections are wrong or whatever. So exactly and to this day you could tell my fear i had of merchandise translates to a massive respect for that person who's in charge of that role for my art so they they always are well looked after because i know how hard their job is and i don't want to damage their job in any way so it's just so important to learn about all the different roles a hundred percent so I'm going to fast forward a little bit to now, unless there's anything you want to say about the last 20 years, but we're also going to unpack some specifics about management. Yeah, we're all good. Okay, great. So you have, how many clients do you have right now? Um, I have a smaller roster than I've had at other points in my career. I have Under Oath, who is a full-time touring band, has a new record coming out. The Starting Line, who play, I think this year they'll play two shows which is a normal year, not a COVID-impacted year for them, and a group called Vacationer. And then the drummer from Under Oath has a couple of other projects he does, and that's, that's all that I did. So not, not a ton of art. But, like, I asked that for a reason because I think that is incredibly wise. I see too and and, you know, I, I was... Actually, I wasn't super guilty of this, but I think it can be really easy to take on too many artists or, um, yeah, I mean, especially as a manager, you know, in earlier days. So have you learned from that? Like, cause I, I, I love it. It's like, you are crushing it on your artists. And I think that would be difficult if it was 10 or 15 artists or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I had this concept early on when I started managing and I don't know why I had this, but I was so right. So I have to share it. I felt that you couldn't pick up more than one artist a year and that you couldn't pick up that next artist until you fully developed a business for that first artist you picked up, had a team, have everything working to some degree flawlessly before even thinking of picking up another act. And you know, I went through a run where I had more acts than I have now, and I, it's not even necessarily by design that I don't, but I only pick something up if I absolutely love it if I love the people and there's a scalable business that we can build together. So all those things are important. And if you're running businesses like that, you can't pick up four bands at once no. or four acts at once. It doesn't have to be bands. You can't pick up four acts at once and give them all the time of day because quite often that startup act needs more time than your superstar act. Mm -hmm. And you really need to have the time to develop them. And if you don't, it's just not going to work. A hundred percent. 
So, yeah, I, I think that is extremely wise. And I think it's really important for artists to understand that. Like, artist management is a very intimate, hands-on relationship. So um, you don't want someone, in my opinion, that that's just taking on too much. I would say in general in the industry, right? But in particular with artist management, because you also need to leave... I mean, we're going to get into balance at some point, but like you also need to leave brain space for yourself, right? It's not just like, okay, I have this amount of tasks to do, or I'm going to take this amount of meetings, or I'm going to be traveling this much. Like you need that headspace and brain space to be able to brainstorm on behalf of your artists. Again, not really a question. (laughs) No, no, I'm I'm, going to just totally agree with you and say too many people start up and they're trying to do way too many things at once. I have a manager friend of mine who I probably shouldn't say his name, although he probably doesn't care, who always had like five different projects he was doing. And he finally, over the last two years, stopped trying to do everything and just focused on one artist that was doing well and dropped everything else. And he's having the highlight of his career. Could not be going any better now. And I'm sure a huge portion of that is him not doing everything else. And if he was still doing everything else, he would have either lost the act or the act wouldn't be where they are right now because he wasn't focused or a little bit of both. I love that. And it sounds like he has the experience to be able to do that. I do think there's kind of a happy medium, you know, like if it's three artists or I think your roster is really the perfect size because it, well, again, you've been working with some of your artists for a long time, which is, such a testament to you. I mean, there's very few artist manager relationships that, that last that long, but it's, um, you know, on our, I'm not doing a lot of management right now, but on our end, it is nice to be able to offer perspective sometimes to artists that can be a little bit more with our consulting clients. I'll, I'll be open about this. Like we've consulted on urge overkill for 13 years and uh, their longtime manager, Beth Weiner, who's amazing, um, approached us in 2009 or something and said, you know, I really want to develop their internet presence. Like, you know, can you guys help me do that? And my point is, is, you know, she comes from, you know, that pre-digital era where so much of the job was really like protecting the band's rights, right? Like, like protect, protect, protect. And that's, that's still part of our job, but I think you and I are a little bit more um, wired to be like open-minded, like try something. And if they screw us over, like bye. But, um, anyway, my point is it can be nice to say to her like, Oh, well, this is what we're doing with Torres, or this is what we're doing with another artist. So she knows that something, even if something is new, it's not necessarily scary. And then I also like, um, you know, if an artist has to cancel or turn something down or whatever, that can create an opportunity for someone else, which I love doing for artists, but I also love solving that problem at the other end of an inbox like again if like we have an artist who's sick or whatever and has to drop out last minute at least I can be like hey do you want to consider this person so I, I do like that sweet spot of like you know three four artists um, which oh is- absolutely and you know with this specific friend it was like this friend needed to focus on one thing first, <laughs> right. but it's not you know like so many years of doing too much you need to kind of just cleanse the palate sometimes but I, I'm with you cool so I wanted to have you on this episode because you are a real deal manager who's been doing it such a long time, like I said, but you're also, well, we'll get into the tech stuff, um, but like you're nimble, right? And so 
Um, I'm, I want you to share, you know, what happened with Under Oath during the pandemic, but also preface, you know, I want to preface that by saying like, I literally would hear from students being like, well, what happens if you're a manager and you have this whole plan and then a pandemic hits? I was like, that's literally management. Like we're constantly getting stuff thrown at us that we have to tweak and make the best of and create a new strategy. Like I would just flip it back to them and they, they can't necessarily empathize with this, but I'm like, what happens in 1999 when music shifts from physical to digital, right? Like you can't predict any of these things. You just have to, um, you know, like make the best of the situation. So share with us, you know, what happened with Under Oath when, when touring shut down last year. Well, first I have to say we could have predicted the shift from physical to digital, but the entire industry didn't care. And people like you or I knew it was coming and many other young, nimble managers or whatever we were doing in the business and were powerless to allow anything to happen that needed to happen. I just, I just have to put that out there. because I'm going to interrupt you and say... I was in high school, but okay. I did kind of have the answer, which is a little obnoxious to say. When Napster yeah. came out, I remember thinking like, okay, I don't have this money. Because I, you know, I'd drive my car to buy CDs or whatever. I thought, okay, Napster. And I was getting all these Oasis B-sides that were really hard to get in Wisconsin where yeah. I grew up. Um, but I would, I'd be like, okay, what would I pay a month for this? $10, 20 I, I went through it in my head. I'm like, I would pay $50 a month for this. Not that I have $50 a month. And yeah. here we are, like Spotify has a free tier. They're rolling out their $199 tier. So I feel you. Yeah. And I just have to add in, I was a witness in the Napster lawsuit between the RIAA on the Napster side because the artist I was managing at the time, the Pilfers, we couldn't get the record label to agree to put out their music internationally. But due to Napster, fans knew their music, and we did a European tour just based off the spread of the music on Napster. So I was always against music being given away for free, but I also used it to my advantage, which talks about your pivoting and using problems to your advantage. So I just kind of wanted to throw that out there, that we literally built a tour based on you know Napster spreading music in the late 90s. Brilliant. I love yeah. it. So let's fast forward to, yeah, pandemic times. So pandemic times, you know, world shut down, as we know. We didn't know what to do. My artist Under Oath and I spent a lot of time talking about what to do. And I actually had seen an artist, and I'm forgetting who it was, but I want to say it was Blur. It was an artist, like, it was a big Britpop band. I mean, can we just keep going with my favorite bands here? Continue. (laughs) And you can probably correct me if I'm wrong on this. I will, but, like, Blur was my senior quote. Like, Oasis was, Noel and Oasis were one, Blur was two. If you want to talk about Pulp, there are three, but go ahead. Yeah, there you go. And it might have been Pulp. It was one of these bands, but they were live tweeting, doing playbacks of their record on Twitter in like April or May during the pandemic. Was Actually, it, it was probably March even. Was it Tim from the Charlatans and his listening parties? It was the Charlatans. There you go. We're going back a little bit earlier, but thank I you. Like, I, knew I, don't, the I don't think Damon's tweeting, but... Yeah, tweet. I didn't think it was Damon, but like I was like, who could it have been? It was someone from Britpop band that I liked. Yeah. So he was doing these listening parties, live tweeting about the record. And I said, I'm going to rip off this idea, but we're going to do it differently. One of the members of my band, Under Oath, was obsessed with Twitch at the time. And he kept telling us, we have to do something with Twitch and Under Oath. And I said, let's take this idea that the charlatans had, and rather than live tweeting the record, let's bring all six band members onto Twitch 
and we'll do a playback of each song on each album and the band will talk about the songs while doing the playback. And then we went a step further and brought in the producer of each record. Then artists that they toured with during each of those tour cycles for each of those albums. And we did a weekly series for you know a couple of months where the band talked about their catalog while the fans listened to it. We at the peak had probably about 10,000 simultaneous listeners listening to the band just talk about their catalog. And through that, the band kind of re-fell in love with their catalog. As a lot of people may not know listening, artists tend to hate everything they did in the past and only love what's the most current thing they're working on. So they kind of fell in love with their music again, and we decided it would be cool to do a live stream celebrating some of their previous catalog. So one of the things that we did is we built this series around each of their core records, their three biggest records of their career. But taking a step back, one other thing that's interesting to add to the story is we had this plan that we've been sitting on to have the band go out and do a tour, doing three nights in different cities, playing their three biggest albums start to finish. And we were going to do vinyl reissues and merch reissues of like classic designs when we did this tour. So we were sitting on this idea and we said, whatever year we don't either have a great headline tour or we couldn't find a great support slot, we'll go out and we'll take this idea that we're sitting on and we'll do it at that point in time. The pandemic rolls around. We're looking to do some kind of live stream thing. We talked about doing the albums. We're like, all right, we're going to take this idea we've been sitting on for years waiting to do when we had to and transition it into a live streaming series. So we built a series of three shows. Each show was completely live. And the first one was the second week in July. I think the next one was the third week in July. And the last one was the fourth week in July. <laughs> and we had, as I said, vinyl reissues. We did a box set of all three of these biggest records in a box. We did classic merch reissues. And we put together a series with our creative agency who's worked with the band for a long time called Tension Division to build just the really important, urgent feeling brand around this. And the band ended up grossing almost a million dollars from the series. We sold over 15,000 pieces of vinyl and it was just a massive success, but we, we went into this not knowing whether any of this would work. Almost no one had done a live stream yet, but we believed in just kind of the overall brand and package that we created. And it's something that I still see artists missing a year plus later now when they want to do a live stream, that you're really building a business with multiple revenue streams. And it's not just simply that you're selling a ticket to watch a band play and nothing else. And that is artist management, people. <laughs> like, taking a problem, solving it. You know, and, and, like, I don't mean this in a bad way or anything, but the idea wasn't necessarily yours, right? It was a band member who's like, no. loving Twitch, this is working. And then you all work together as partners to execute on it, make it happen. And suddenly, honestly, the entire industry was looking at you and pointing at you, being like, this worked, pay attention to this. It, it, exactly, and... Almost none of these things were my direct ideas. 
like me and one of the other band members talked about doing the series of shows at some point in time. And it kind of spurred from me going, Hey, we should do a vinyl reissue at some point. I was like, yeah, I want to do this tour idea eventually. And I was like, all right, let's table this. This was too good to just do haphazardly. So it's like, had an idea and I was like, all right, let's pull from it. And the band member wanted to do something on Twitch, but didn't know what to do on Twitch. And I looked at what the charlatans were doing and said, all right, let's take the charlatans guy idea, combine it with the under oath guy idea. And now we have an idea. And it's important that it's, it's not about you and it's not about your idea. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of the branding and look and feel of this all came from tension division where we told them, like, we want to do this concept where they play their album. And that was about all we had. And we're going to play the albums. We're going to have vinyl. It was their idea to do a box set. Some of these brilliant camera angles we had were all their ideas. How to brand it was their idea. The name they gave it was their idea. But having ideas and being open to other people altering your idea is kind of what almost makes you an idea person, though. Because the person who must have their idea and do it their way it it doesn't work. Exactly. And again, it was it's it was so cool that the the initial idea came from came from a band member because that's what's going to be most authentic. It's like, oh, this is what's working. And like they're gonna know, you know, I feel that authenticity is queen, and that's obviously what connects with fans and hopefully turns them into fans forever. Exactly. Sweet. Okay. So we're gonna talk about tech and balance and some other things later and also um you know some more management stuff but i kind of want to take you through the book a little bit we've done that with artists we've done that with industry people and just get your get your thoughts um on some of these things which is essentially like a modern release cycle um so chapter one is called get your art together um when you know normally i ask like when do you feel an artist is like ripe and ready to record but i i will i will add you know you work with bands and groups you know so like how do you plan for that right like how do you it's, how do you know like okay we're ready like we have the songs we're ready to go cuz you have to you know there's multiple lives going on it's not just a self-contained solo artist so in your world when is an artist ripe and ready to record well also you know, taking into consideration in theory, like the under oath guys touring and stuff. Yeah. So are you saying when a new act is ready to record or however you want to answer that? Because I, I see, you know, um, and, and I know you do too, like in normal times, like artists come up to me at conferences being like, I really want to play you my music, but I need a new drummer. or I need a new vocalist. And it's like, well, get that stuff and then send it to me. Right. So sometimes I feel like it it can be a little, you know, forced or like, um, you know, I, I took on an artist, uh, a couple years ago and she's always owned all her rights. I mean, it's, it's Julia Nunes. She's very known for, Oh yeah. Like, I love her. Yeah, she's yeah, great. exactly. And she, so she, you know, she has her own label and everything. And she set this release date that she was stressing about. I was like, why don't we just set the release date when you're done with the album? So I guess I'm trying to say like, when is an artist ready? And then how do you factor that when there's, when it's a band or a group and there's multiple lives in one project, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, well, it's, it's interesting because the, when you're ready is like when the songs are ready, right. when you have the right music and, you know, talk about Julia with timelines is I try to almost never have strict timelines when my artists are recording mm-hmm. because it's more important for the art to be ready than for there to be a timeline. 
and just making sure everything's right, that's when you do it. With, with Under Oath, we just announced a new record that they're putting out in January. We literally decided on the official, official street date about 13 to 16 hours before we announced the record. Like, which was not a great situation. There were a few issues there, but a lot of it was being flexible and not trying to force a certain date in. And by being flexible, we were able to move to fit needs that we needed to, to be better for record label needs, personal needs, just everything across the board to have a better plan. So forcing dates is to me is always a bad thing. The other thing I'll say is where you mentioned, you know, artists saying to you, oh, I have, I want to share music, but we're waiting for this and that. Don't share your music with anyone until it's really done. Mm -hmm. Because so many of us, we have a short attention span and we're going to judge you whether we mean to or not. It may not be a personal, like nasty judgment, but if you play me music and it's not up to par and it's not ready yet, in my mind, I'm going to go, that's a really nice person, but their music's just not there. And that's what I'm going to remember. So we're judging you, you know, rightfully so or not. So don't give us music until you want it to be judged because we may not have the bandwidth and memory to remember like, oh, this person wasn't finished with this. You know, they told us that and then I have it and I'm like, oh, this kid doesn't know what they're doing. And you can be ruled out before you're even ready. So it's really important to make sure your music's ready. But on the other side of that, don't be that person that stays in your garage for your whole life and never leaves because you're trying to be perfect. There's, there's a fine line between the two. That's such a good point. And I think it can come down to intuition, you know, like you as an artist know in your heart and soul when this is ready, you know, when your vision is in musical form and, and ready to be shared with the world. Yeah, and my feeling is when your music is typically ready to share with the world is when somebody who has zero vested interest in you or your music has something positive to say. Your mom, your brother, your boyfriend, <laughs> your girlfriend, they're always going to be encouraging. Right. But that person who couldn't care less, when that person who couldn't care less about who you are has something positive to say, that's typically the moment where you're about to really go somewhere. I love that. And again, just to exemplify it further, I mean, roughly how many clients do you have? I know there's, you know, solo projects and stuff like that, but like three, we'll four. Say, yeah, three or four. So, you know, somewhere in that range. So if something is just okay, or you need to work on your vocals or you need to work on your drumming, it's like, you're obviously, any good manager is like, you're obviously highly selective in when you take someone on. Right. So again, yet another reason yeah. to put your best foot forward. And you and I are, are very accessible, right? Like our email addresses, our Twitter, whatever, we're very findable. So just get it right and then pass it along. Exactly. And reach out when you have something or if, you know, you could reach out before then you could just send a friendly note with no ask at all. Like, Hey, I'm a fan of you as a manager, you know, i just have a question. Like that's fine too. Like if you're looking to build relationships, nice. just think of how that person on the other side is going to react. Don't write us a five page email with no takeaway at all, because I've written back to people and sometimes they're offended and I apologize to all of them that are, but if you write me like a two page long email, I'm really freaking busy and I don't have time to read that. So keep, keep the ask and the comments short. And hopefully I'll open up a dialogue. But if you write too much, it's just going to be too much. And I'm going to rule out even creating a dialogue with you. 
The goal is for the email to get read. So yeah, just keep that in mind, people. Man, and like, I know you deal with this all the time too, but it's like, I got a long, it wasn't from an artist. I got a pitch from someone for one of our athletes. And I'm just like, what are they communicating? <laughs> you know, I only yeah. wrote back and said that, but I didn't want to be too obnoxious. I, I figured it out, but. I, I yeah. And it. sometimes you just can't figure it out. And I'll, I'll just add in one other thing about reaching out to managers and people in the industry. Don't lie to us. Like there's, it's fine for a little smoke and mirrors and kind of using hype like we all use in the industry. But if you lie to us, we're going to figure it out. And there was one artist that reached out to me probably 10 years ago now who told me an agent at CAA was about to pick them up. And like they'd email me a few times. I was like, oh, that's great. And I, I reached out to the agent. They told me he was about to pick them up. And he's like, I'm not about to pick them up. They told me that you're about to pick up. And it was literally, I was excited for this band. Even though I didn't like them, I was excited because they were nice kids. Yeah. And the kid emailed me and went off on me that I ruined his chance to get an agent. And like I attacked him. And I literally emailed the other agent to be like, hey, that's cool that you like these guys. They seem like nice kids. And he's like, I'm not picking this band up. So like just, you know, it could blow up in your face the lying part of it. And I always try to remind people of that. And like there was a decent strategy there, but they took it too far. Because yeah, you could say you're talking yes, to them. Yes, that's, that's the word I would have used. I'm talking to this agent. I'm talking to Randy. Both of those things are true. Exactly, and it's you could use some hype and smoke and mirrors, which is I'm talking to because I replied to you. Now we're talking, but just don't lie. Exactly. It's just not going to help you. And this goes for managers, artists, whatever. A hundred percent. Well, let me ask this: Have you ever taken on an artist via a cold pitch? No, I never have. Mm-hmm. Same. Uh, yeah. I've taken them on from a pitch from someone I knew where I knew the artist in some way, but didn't know them well. Right. But never a cold pitch ever in my career. But that said, I'm always open to it. I, yeah. I've never once ruled it out like this is a cold pitch. I don't want this. I just always ask the same questions and it's usually what are you doing for yourself that's working so well that you now need help? Yes. And I've almost never gotten that answered correctly. And I have a few times and there's been artists who I've helped to point in the right direction, made intros for who have done some of those things too. So, um, you know, it's, it's not unheard of too. That is why the the title of this chapter and episode is the last chapter in the book. And so we're going through the book, but the last chapter is when do I need an attorney, business manager, and or manager defining an artist traditional quote team because of what you're saying. It's like, you're saying to artists like, cool, why are you at a point that you need management? Which is exactly like the point is it's exactly why this episode and this, um, and this, this chapter is, is literally last. I will add, um, we did take on one cold pitch. Actually, uh, my, my business partner did. And this, just this beautiful music. Um, I won't describe it too well in case I get too Mm. specific or something, but yeah, I mean, it was just gorgeous. And she set up a show for them in New York. She was, of course she was upfront, like, okay, 
this is our commission. This is how management works. Everything was agreed to. As soon as she sent our first invoice, I mean, man, she was making the money within a few months. They're like, oh, we can't afford this. <laughs> so I, I feel so bad because I'm like the one cold pitch we've taken on in like 15 years, like decided they didn't even want that. But I'm, I'm saying this not to dissuade people because, um, again, you and I get these cold pitches all the time. But for me, these relationships have been organic. And on one hand, that can be a little hard when shows aren't really happening. That, that's how... I certainly got to know a lot of people, but um, yeah, just put yourself out there is what I'd say and start to build organic relationships. And again, people like Randy have four clients. They're not necessarily like, you know, out there seeking artists. Like maybe if, if there is a music business student or a, um, a college student who's not in a music business program, but is ride or die music business and they want to help you out and they're on that professional track, that's what happened with the Dresden Dolls and me. And that benefited them. That benefited me. So it's like, I'm not saying don't email Randy, but um, I don't know. Does any of that make sense? Often, yeah. Often that friend is going to be a better manager 100%. who's going to live or die by your success yes. versus somebody who's done this 20 times. It's like, oh, this fits my roster. I guess I'll do this. Yes. It's, it's very different. I have one comment that I have to add to your story about Please. the whole pitch artist that you ended up picking up. Even though every artist I've known in some way, shape, or form before I started managing them, I still don't officially really consider myself the manager for any act until I get paid for the first time. Nice. And it's, I, it, I don't know if it's a mental thing for myself to protect myself from getting hurt or what it is, but like, I just know until they pay you, it's just not really real. And it's not about the money. I've never done this for the money. I'll never do any deal strictly for the money. It's just uh, them understanding that it's a reciprocal relationship. I'm going to go to bat and kill for you, but you're also going to compensate me so I can feed my family because I'm killing for you. Yes. And to highlight that further, um, in my younger management days, I took on a band where shit happened fast. Again, I don't want to give away too much, but they were like opening for a huge artist at a very famous venue. And that was their second gig. And I got them a huge agent and all these things happened so quickly. Um, and then, so I wasn't commissioning for a few months cause it was, you know, like support gigs and whatever, but they, they were making money pretty quickly after that, some sinks and stuff. And so when I sent my first invoice, suddenly it was like, Oh, Emily's all about money. And that was a huge yep. lesson for me because the next artist I took on, um, I think they were, they, they had some great support. So same thing, like not making, you know, losing money on the road, but I was like, we're going to commission on everything or figure it out if it's money losing or whatever, but we need to get paid something for our time. And when I set that vibe from day one, it was n never an issue. So I, I, I exactly with that. Yeah. And it's, it's just something that you have to set as a manager. And I often kind of like you said, like I will waive commissions on things where totally. it makes sense to waive them because it's going to help the artist's career go grow. I'm not about the money, but it's a business. This is the music business. And if I'm going to not feed my family to help you feed your family, I have to, you know, it just doesn't work. Like we're, we're partners in everything we do. And I for years felt uncomfortable every time I got a commission check. I literally got like this nauseous feeling in my stomach in the early years of my career because I truly feel that what my job is, is getting paid to help my friends. And 
it feels weird to take money sometimes to help your friends. Sure. But at the same time, and we didn't necessarily define this, but managers work on commission. So when artists are writing cash checks to a publicist or a promo team or a social media or whatever, we live or die by you. So I think that's really important for people to understand. It's, we're on the same team. Exactly. And it's why I often encourage managers to take a commission when an artist is making 50 bucks a night. Same. Because it just helps people to appreciate it and understand the partnership. And it's not about taking the money. You could take that small commission and put it in an account and use it to help the artist in ways they don't even know. Right. But like, just create that reciprocal relationship. It's just too important not to. Yeah. And you said it, but in the earlier days and, and those support tours where they're losing money or they're not making money or whatever, like you're often working harder. So yeah, I'm with you. Like we've always commissioned on everything. And then of course, if it's like a money losing tour or something, we'll look at the numbers and I'll be like, if you can throw us like a few hundred bucks, that's like some nice meals for the interns and I or something, you know? So yeah, pretty much every band I've worked with when they've done their first couple of European tours. I waive my commission because right. it was going to be the difference between making a tour work or not. And, and again, yeah, sorry, go ahead. And, and it's more work to do a European tour, but I don't care. It's about their success. For sure. And again, like, I think I'd like to think most managers are like us. Like these are conversations, right? So if something feels uncomfortable to the artist, like bring it up. And, and I feel like it's usually, I mean, you and I have never even really worked together on management stuff, but I feel like it's usually us bringing it up, but um, just, it's all about communication. Exactly. I had, you know, years ago with Under Oath, they were really unhappy with our management agreement, which was a very fair agreement, but there were little things that bothered them and they didn't talk about it. Oh, and wow. it kept like getting worse and worse and worse. And eventually I came to a head and like a really like, big fight and you know we we worked it out because it was just like just talk to me tell me what you don't like how can we change this and the interesting thing is if you search on youtube there's a documentary i think it's called tired violence that somebody leaked we never actually released it but it's a huge chunk of it is me renegotiating my contract with them and the band being unhappy with the deal all out there in the documentary wow which I think is really cool. The documentary, I wasn't a fan of how the documentary came out, but sure. I wasn't bothered by the content. None of it bothered me that like my dirty laundry aired. It just wasn't a great film in general, right. but it could really give you an inside view to some of that, but it's also really long and hard to watch. <laughs> I will check it was that a documentary. Out. Yeah. You as another manager will love this. It was a documentary where my artist was talking shit about me and I'm sitting there as a fly on the wall watching this later and I was bored. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that tells you just how it wasn't a releasable film, but it wasn't about me as to why it wasn't released. For sure. But at the same time, like whether it's a personal relationship, artist management or whatever, like you can't build up resentment and not talk about things. That's just. It, exactly. And I go through that with my artists to this day. I right. have to remind people. I had an artist just recently who was trying to get a mortgage for their house and was waiting for a check to come through that they needed to post to help them get their mortgage. And the artist like, called me really angry one day. I was like, whoa, what's going on? And yeah. he just started going off about what his problem was. I said, he just called me and said, hey, we need a check to hit on this date to help get a mortgage approved. I would have taken care of that. Like, we totally. didn't need all these other parts. Like, 
you tell me what the problem is, I will find a solution. I always did. So it's just, you know, even working with people for 20 years, you still run into these problems. And may, I see managers, you know, make assumptions too. Like I, I, I had a young co-manager and we were doing a management agreement and the, the young co-manager started adding in deductions. And I was like, that's the artist attorney's job. And he's like, well, I just want to be, you know, really artist friendly. I'm like, our deals are super artist friendly. And if you do that and don't tell the artists, you're going to build up resentment about all the, you know, like cutting yourself down financially because you think like that's right for them and they don't even know it. So it can work on both sides if that makes sense. Totally. And the one last other thing I'll say about communication is I'm just as guilty at being a bad communicator at times too. So I don't even want to just attack my artists. Like I'm terrible at it sometimes too. And certain times one artist in a group will get information later than everyone else. Or I start working on something and don't share all the info and you know, it, it happens. And you know, we're not perfect. I just want to remind people that, you know, these are long-term relationships with good and bad moments and you work, it's how you work through them. And it's okay to admit that you screw up too, because we all do. Oh, a hundred percent. Absolutely. Okay. Um, I, I, we won't spend as much time on each chapter, but, um, uh, how are your artists using email list, text message club and social media? I mean, this, you know, the, the name of this chapter is uh, pre-recording marketing foundation, email list, text message club, and social media. Obviously, your clients have all these things in place, but what's what's working? What are some best practices as far as like direct-to-fan communication? Yeah, so actually, we're not doing as much text-based messaging as I'd like, primarily because of the cost. And my artists are of a pretty big size, but they're yeah. not seeing the, the revenue to support the cost for text. The platforms that... I've been most excited about recently is this kind of sidestepping your question, but I think it gives the answer to is we've been using Shopify stores to run their merchandise business, but then we're using a, a Shopify app called Clavio, which is C-L-A-Y-V-I-O, I think, which is an unbelievable platform. It's, it's an email management solution, but it's also email management based on what the commerce relationship is like with the fan. So I could send an email to people who bought just black t-shirts. I could send an email to people who bought our first record, but not our second record. And we can just break all these different things down and message the fans based on their activity. And then also set, you know, on people's birthday, they automatically get an email and there's just all these different flows that you could set within this email platform, you know, and it's, it's a customer relationship management platform ultimately. And that's, that's been my favorite tool of late. Awesome. I love that. Okay. Chapter three is get your business affairs together and fair compensation. Actually, I was going to reference this when we were talking about communication before. Um, yeah, I mean, well, what I was going to reference is I feel like people don't talk about songwriting splits enough or, or at all. Right. Um, so yeah. So what business affairs elements do you think are important for artists at any level, starting out veterans, whatever, you know, songwriting, talk about it in the room. You could talk about it afterwards. If it's awkward to talk about it beforehand, but just let people know what your agreements are. And for a band, especially you hopefully have a system in place to make sure that 
everyone knows what the system is going to be because, you know, songwriting can get very tricky very quickly. Great. So chapter four, we can, we can skip this. We skip this with almost everyone, how to record with or without a budget. Although, although one review of the book was like, this is probably the most important chapter in the book. I'm like, really? I skip it at all my talks because I feel like most people have that figured out. Yeah. So let's, let's move on to chapter five. Music publishing isn't scary or confusing, plus how to land a sync placement. So, um, you know, you don't have to get into obviously like deal specifics or anything, but yeah. How do you approach music publishing with your artists? How do you work your music publishers? How do you approach sync? All that good stuff. Music publishing is scary and it is hard, but <laughs> but we have to learn and we have to find good experts to work with us on it. That's that's what I'll say on that. But as far as like, you know, interestingly, the publisher for like my one artist who's the most active in writing, his publisher is my former day-to-day manager who worked for me for years. And she left and did A&R for a few companies and recently launched a publishing company with Spirit Publishing. And, you know, she works me as a publisher rather than me working her. Like, she's just got him working constantly and in the room with the right people and building the right relationships. But as far as sync, my artists, just the style of music that I work with, for whatever reason, we've always, for the most part, had fairly bad luck with publishing. The only group that does well with sync is Vacationer. And they kind of are outside the norm of a bunch of the other groups on my roster. They're more um, like beats oriented and indie indie vibe feeling. And that's important for people to understand as well. Um, I don't consider sync like a core revenue stream because you can't rely on it. Um, there's nothing wrong with being told, you know, like the Dresden Elf used to be told this. They had they had great sync pitching companies. And I remember like bank, bank robber would say to us, and this was really helpful. They're like, music supervisors love this band. They want to be on the guest list. They're genuinely fans, but the music stands out too much. And obviously sync is short for synchronization. And the vast majority of things are instrumental music. So you heard it from... Um, a great manager here with big artists. Uh, don't don't be bummed if you're not learning things. Yeah, and I could tell you, Vacationer is probably the smallest artist I manage, and by far has the most revenue in sync. Yeah, like Under Oath, multiple gold records, Grammy nominations, sold out tours around the world yep. with thousands of people there. Vacationer, I don't think ever sold out more than five or six hundred tickets a market never sold more than twenty or 30,000 records of a record. But they had an amazing run as a band for sync. So know your place. Know that not every act is going to work well in sync. And, you know, the style of your music is going to direct how well you do with sync quite often. That is such a good point. Um, we had Lauren Ross on the show to talk about sync, and she's one of my favorite. She's not doing a lot of sync stuff right now, but she she was one of my favorite sync pitching people, still one of my favorite people. And I had a small new band um, that I sent to her once, and um, she didn't write back right away because she's busy and whatever. But when she did, she's like, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. I'm just getting back to you now. I can crush it on this. And this is a band like no one has ever really heard of. But she did. She started popping off yeah. these five-figure placements. So, um, yeah, you can be a huge band like Under Oath and not really be a fit and sync world. Or you can be uh, – I mean, there's plenty of unknown people, right? There's so many people that, that write for sync. So 
Um, yeah. And huge shout out to your former day to day with her publishing company at Spirit and working you. Yeah, I love that. She is she is the best. Melissa Sabo is awesome. Oh, I love, love Melissa. Good stuff. Yep. Cool. Okay, setting up your release and distribution distribution plan. I meant to say when you were talking, I think you were talking about Under Oath before, where you decided it sounds like at some point this summer on a January release date that you decided very quickly. I just want to. I kind of just said it, but I just want to exemplify. You yeah. didn't say, you didn't decide in 24 hours the album's going to be out tomorrow. <laughs> you said it's going to be exactly. out next year. So um, what is, I mean, you work with all different types of artists, but you know, what is your thought process when you're putting a release and distribution plan together? So for Under Oath, just kind of how we came to the street date portion of the conversation, I'll, I'll start there. We were supposed to have vinyl ready for street date. And vinyl was delayed, which everybody knows is a big thing right now. And we decided that Under Oath is a type of band where people look at our chart position and they look at how the band is performing. And if we didn't have physical records out on release date, there could be the perception within the industry that the record's a failure. And that's a bad look for the band, obviously. And we know that they're going to sell a significant amount of physical but if on release date, you don't sell a significant amount of records, if you want to get that arena level support slot, people are looking for the bands that just charted. It's just a weird fact of how the industry still works. So we decided that we should move our release date because we want to have a high charting release on, you know, on our, you know, our street date. It has to perform well. So that was the motivation. And we got the call from the label the night before we were supposed to announce the record that vinyl was delayed. So we moved it to January to be 100% sure that it will be ready in time. Cool. I love January release dates. I, I just think it's, it's you know, the holidays are done. We're like, everybody's checked out and then you just start the year fresh. So I think that that worked out regardless. Yeah. The only like hesitancy for January release dates is how much work needs to be done setting the record up in mid to late December. Right when everyone in the industry is home for Christmas break and you have to be sure that whatever you're doing, you're not going to need a lot of those other people who may not be around. Exactly. Definitely. Cool. So what does marketing mean to you? Chapter seven is how to market with or without a budget. Yeah. It's creating moments that are going to stand out and make people talk about them. And, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example. Under Oak's current record is called Voyeurist. And the original idea was something that I pitched the band that they turned down, which was to have cameras in the studio following everything they did. And it was a whole intricate idea that I talk about another time. It's too long for a short conversation. But the band was intrigued by the idea. And that kind of became the brand for the record, even though we didn't do the original project. And then from there, it's how do you create different projects based on the concept of the brand. And a lot of what this concept for this record's about, it's that artists are always on stage. They're always judged by whatever they said. And sometimes rightfully so. I mean, in this era where a lot of bad stuff is coming out about people, it's great that it's being found out. But there's also the like 19-year-old kid who said they loved some band that they couldn't care less about anymore. And now everybody thinks, because in this important interview, you said you love this band and they keep talking to you about these things and you become 
who and our, our creative director came up with this term that he was calling digital ghosts. And people are like stuck on these digital ghosts of you that no longer exist. But in somebody's perception, that's who you are today. So we built this entire concept around the marketing for the record on this. And like one of the ideas that I came up with in conjunction with the band's booking agent, again, you never know where the ideas are going to come from on your team. Don't assume that your agent is only there to book. So I told the agent about this idea about an AI filter that Pearl Jam used on their last record, where you held your phone up to the moon and it unlocked a song for you to hear the first single from the record. He was like, it would be cool if you could do something like that, but with a webcam, since everything's been about cameras with this voyeurist theme. And I came up with this idea where the only way that fans can listen to the first song we released from the new album was to go on their computer, turn on their webcam. And when they turn on their webcam, they're broadcasting themselves out on the internet to other fans watching them listen to the song. Whoa. So while... While artists are usually giving up their privacy in exchange for having, you know, a career, we flipped the script and said, if you want to hear the music, we're putting you on stage and you're being judged. And we purposely made it harder to listen to the music rather than easier to listen to the music. And to me, that would be an example of marketing because... Yes, you should, in theory, make it as easy as possible to consume music. But sometimes it's about making a statement and creating an art project and saying, no, we're putting on you on stage. We're going to judge you and we're going to watch you listening to us to get a feel for what it's like. And if you don't like that, that's fine. Within a couple of days, the songs will be on Apple Music and Spotify and Deezer and Tidal. But if you want to hear it first, you have to give up some of your privacy, just like we're giving up some privacy when we put the song out in the world. To me, that's an example of marketing. It's taking an idea. It's the brand that we created. Now, how are we going to create new ways for people to interact with this content? I and love that. Yeah, go go ahead. That is amazing. Thank you. I was going to say, and mess with people's heads in the process. And, you know, we, we added something where fans can pre-save the record as they're doing this experience, even though it wasn't even out on, on the, the DSPs yet. DSPs are digital service providers, streaming sites. So we purposely, like we've added all these different things. And now each song on the record, when we, before we release it on the streaming sites, it's going to go up a day or two early on this voyeurist page. And we're hopefully going to get a ton of additional pre-saves for the record so that more people hear it on street date. And it just messes with people's heads because it's not what you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to invade your fans' privacy ever. I just think it's so cool. Like, my marketing brain is more like, like, to me, that's, like, inherently viral. Like, you're creating this content of people who are genuinely excited to hear. I, I love creatively what you're doing. I love the strategy with the pre-saves and everything. Like, all of that is super smart. But I think just emotionally, I mean, how much, you know, did people love watching, like, in pandemic times, um, families of Olympians, right? Like, seeing that yeah. joy, seeing that excitement. I mean, I don't, I don't know if there was, like, you know, groups of people uh, listening, you know, hearing the music for the first time. But I, I think that is so cool. So, way to go. Thank you. Yeah. And it's, it's just, but to me, that's what marketing is. It's, it's tapping into what your message is and figuring out how to build a story from there. 
You mean it's not hiring a publicist for $5,000 a month and thinking you'll be huge? No, but I can tell you hiring a good publicist who is involved with every marketing call and understands your message and your branding can have a difference. I've, I've had a bunch of publicists across the run of Under Oath's career, and this publicist I adore so far because I've kind of taken a different approach to everything we do on this record, and I'm doing a weekly call with everyone on the team, regardless of what their role is. The person who's creating the art is talking to the publicist who's also talking to the person who's talking to the streaming services. And we catch up once a week with just everybody talking about what they're working on because it gives the publicist more knowledge to go out and talk to everyone else about what we're working on. Which is essentially a manager's job, which we should probably define. Um, what does being a manager mean to you? A manager to me is a band is a corporation and the manager is the CEO of that corporation and we're overseeing all the individual business divisions. One would be publishing, another would be recorded music, another would be merchandising, another one would be live events, and all these different areas. I may not have my hand on running the day-to-day -day of those areas. I hopefully have a merch company running merch. I have a tour manager running the tour. I have a head of marketing and a label president running recorded music. I have my publisher running publishing but I'm interacting with all of them on a regular basis and holding them accountable to doing their jobs, but also stepping in to do their jobs for them when they need help. Exactly. And that's where that empathy piece comes in, right? It's like, you know, when you were hanging out with um, the Oasis Sony um, college marketing person, right? Like you understand what that is like. You understand what being a booking yeah. agent is like. And so that's, that's where that empathy comes in. And my point on the publicist was like, because I'm sure you hear this too, like at conferences, it's like people just like, you know, artists seem really obsessed with PR and spending thousands of dollars and it's not good for the publicist. <laughs> it's not good for the artist. There's just not a lot of communication going on. Like, you know, people can lift that amazing idea you just shared, even though I'm sure there was some really rad technology behind it. It could be as simple as like, hey, fans, film yourself listening to our new song you know, and we're going to share, you know, our favorite ones or whatever, and then get that to the publicist to spread the word, right? It's not just, oh, I'm paying someone, then I'm going to be huge. Exactly. And a perfect example would be this concept that we came up with for this camera site. I told the publicist about it in advance. I've also told the publicist, I want to get press on this, Yeah. but I don't want it yet. I want to wait until I have a success story. When we're rolling into single two, and using this concept a second time. And we have benchmarks for how it worked the first time and the cool. second time, and we can tell the story of how we're doing something different. Then I want the publicist to go out and tell the story because you need to give the publicist an actual story to tell. If you give it to them too early, you have nothing. Exactly, I love that. Okay, chapter eight, your live strategy. We, we did talk about that a bit, um, but the full title is your live strategy and efficient touring. So I know we're still in weird quasi-vaccinated times, um, but what does efficient touring mean to you, pandemic times or not? Efficient touring is just touring safely, be it COVID or not, making sure that you know the drives are doable, the band can show up, be coherent, and do their job to perform. And 
proper routing, proper money so that everybody can know what they're going to make and budget in advance and plan to make sure that the concept works. Well, and again, that's, that's what's so great about you getting on the road. You know, the first month you were a manager, um, I was a tour manager for years. And again, I keep using this word, but that empathy is crucial, you know? And, and again, you have that from the booking agency side as well. It's just, um, I mean, there's millions of examples like this, but it's like, you know, you don't want to be the person like setting up a morning radio show after a late night DJ set. Like maybe that sounds super obvious, but until you physically experience that, um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I mean, do you feel like most managers have spent time on the road? Um, you know, they have to varying degrees, but it, it, it depends how they tour. And, you know, some just pop in an hour before the show and go back to the four seasons. Right. And others are, you know, slumming it with the artist and really feeling what it's like. And, you know, one of the problems that you find when, you know, a new artist goes to one of these older managers who's been doing this for decades, which I guess I fall into now as well in theory. You look young. But You've got that going thank on. Thank you. Yeah. But like those, a lot of times those people don't understand what it's like to be on the road. They've completely forgotten. Right. And, you know, like it's just, it's, it's important to recognize that and some some don't get it. Like you said, like the late night DJ set and then the morning radio, like you got to figure out which, which appearance is more important and maybe you need to cancel one and that's okay. And I think there's also a happy medium um, besides uh, the nights in floor and, or in between the nights in floor. And, um, you know, I had another example for a high-end manager, but I I started working with an artist and he, he had a, you know, super fancy old school manager before me. And he's like, Oh my gosh, my, my, my manager before, um, you know, it wouldn't make sense for them to come to my London show. Cause they only flew business class and it's like, order someone like me that just has frequent flyer status. So, you know, an artist pays, you know, expenses with approval. So that was just going to be a coach flight, but I would always get up yeah. there because I flew all the time. So there's a happy medium too. Exactly. And then you have managers like me who have almost never charged one of my artists for travel. Wow. The only times I've charged my artists for travel is when they specifically request that I go somewhere that I don't necessarily want to go or feel that I need to go. Sure. But I've, you know, under oath, especially it's a six person band. The money only goes so far with six people. And I'm treated in a lot of ways like a partner in the band. So that's my piece to contribute. And, you know, some of the ways that that band has been structured over time, it's like different band members have to pay for their own musical equipment, even though they're a hugely successful band. So I look at it as my responsibility is to get myself there. And I, yeah, go ahead. And it's just like, there's no, you know, the big thing is there's no right or wrong. Right. There's, you know, you got to make everyone happy. And if a band is making significant amounts of money and they would prefer not to pay for your flight, is it worth ruining a relationship over and losing business over because of that, you know, extra, you know, what are we really spending three or $4,000 a year, probably on travel to see an artist. And, you know, hopefully you're making substantially more than that. So sometimes that goodwill goes a long way in itself. Yeah. A hundred percent. But then I've also experienced the opposite where um, that same artist I was just referencing, he got to the point, he didn't like doing anything without me. So it was like a charity show or a promo thing or whatever. Like he was totally cool. He's like, no, you're coming. 
Um, so yeah, that- and that's fine then. Right. And then you become almost like the tour manager, and that's and that's fine. It's just the cost should be covered then. Yeah, agreed. And there's there's no judgment. There's just like like I said, there's a different system for everyone and there's no right or wrong in this business it's so true because the needs of the artist yeah it's so true because um i hope this doesn't upset any music clients but when i started working um in sports i've never charged my clients when i've gone to nationals or world championships or even the olympics because that's the last place they need me you know they have their coaches they have their teammates they have their support staff um so yeah, it completely just depends on the situation. I, I totally hear you. And sometimes it's just exciting to be there. You want to be there and that's okay. You'll, yeah. you'll, you'll pay your own way to, to have fun because and, we all got into this for the fun too. Yeah. And, and not to, you know, completely give it away, but, um, you know, one of those athletes who ended up winning a, a gold medal, um, I think is, Congrats. thank you. Um, this was in 2016. So now I'm giving away even more, but oh, yeah. I yeah. think he is the only client that, that ever bonused me. And he did that af- awesome. after that goal. And I think it was part of it was like, he knew I was, you know, schlepping down to Rio and like organizing his friends in a condo and tour managing them. And um, yeah, so it all, it all works out. Okay. Yeah, I agree. So we touched on merch uh, for the merch recon chapter. Any, any additional thoughts on your, your, uh, your fears <laughs> doing merch at a live show situation? No, the only thing I would just add to merch that we didn't say before, but is kind of obvious, is it's the area where you're most likely to make the most money, and it's the area that's most often forgotten about. You'll hear artists go on and on that they're upset that Spotify pays XYZ rate, and they don't think it's fair. But they're not building a merch business, and you're going to make so much more money from merchandise than streaming unless you're an A-level superstar. So learn Shopify, learn at venue for touring merchandise and find a good designer to follow a brand of whatever your brand is and make great products that people want and run it like a business. Brilliant points on griping about streaming royalties and then you know, not looking at your own merch situation. We had Julia Noons on for the merch episode and um, both her and another artist we interviewed, you know, talked to, and we, we've experienced this too, but it was interesting to hear artists say this, like, they're like, we have seen artists we love crush it in front of tons of people and then have no merch. And then they'll bring it up as an artist friend. And they're like, yeah, I've been thinking about looking into that. So, you know, to bring it back to sports for a second, I know there's um. There's a, I'm sure this, I'm sure there's plenty of coaches that use this, but I know there's a big swim coach that'll say, control the controllables. You can control your merch store, your merch output. You can't necessarily control streaming rates. So excellent. Exactly. I love that. Cool. Okay. So one last chapter before we bring it back around to the title of this episode, and I will let you go at some point. Um, (laughs) Chapter 10 is revenue stream checklist. So I, I'll admit, I think when I was starting out as a manager, I I don't know if overwhelmed was the right word, but I was always like, oh my gosh, like, did they get their ASCAP? Did they get their this? You know what I mean? Like, um, so I'm sure you work with business managers, but how do you best, how do you track revenue streams and how do you make sure your artists are, are getting all of them? Because they are, these revenue streams are all over the place. It's hard. There's, there's one really cool platform that I'm not using as much as I'd like that's helpful, 
that's called Hi-Fi. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with them. I am. But um, yeah, but I'll, I'll share a little more since most people probably aren't. It's a platform where you can log in your sound exchange, your ASCAP, if you have a publisher, your publishing info, and it gives you an update. It's like a dashboard to help you track your revenue. So I've utilized that to some degree, not as well as I should, but I want to recommend it to other people because it's very useful. But it's just remembering and, you know, ideally I should probably have a calendar that I set a schedule to make sure that sound exchange, um, like we said, ASCAP, BMI or CSAC, record company royalties and publishing royalties and all these things are coming in on a quarterly basis or whatever basis um, the deals are structured with. But then there's other things. There's like ARC, which I think is something that has to do with, I don't know, like reproduced cassette tapes or something where you still get paid some small amount of money. And now there's that MTL, which is sort of like sound exchange, but for the um, writers... Yeah, yeah, sort of the mechanic. So there's just, there's constantly new things appearing too. And as you could tell, me describing this, I've been doing this for 20 years, and I think you could tell I'm somewhat confident in what I know about this business. But when it comes to this, I still struggle to know what these things are, and I'm still chasing money. I recently had one of my acts where it took me a couple of years fighting with Universal Music Group to get them to agree and believe that I'm the artist's manager to give me access to see their royalties in their royalty dashboard. Wow. And when I finally got access, we found out there was a significant amount of money owed to the group. But the, for some reason, some of their royalties weren't showing up in the dashboard, but I didn't even have access to the dashboard. Mm-hmm. So it's just constantly chasing and trying to learn. I, I don't have a great answer on how other than just educate yourself read books like yours and the Donald Passman book and just learn and follow and keep reading about the industry to learn about new revenue streams that you may not know about. And then constantly try to create new ones as well. Like I talked about with live streaming. So that was a motivation in writing this book. Um, The motivation was twofold Um, first, and I'm sure this happens to you all the time. Um, you know, artists want to pick my brain or whatever, whether they're a friend or something I'm making the time for. And I was having the same conversation over and over. So that's like the foundation of this book. Um, cause now I can just be like, like here, that. have it for free. And if you have any questions, <laughs> let me know. But then the other half was we took on two national acts a few years ago and I kept finding money for them similar, you know, to what you were just describing. And I was just like, and I'll be frank, because you'd be fine with this. Like one of them was Julia, who the industry sometimes props up as like, oh, she's so modern and DIY and be like Julia. And, you know, again, I've, I've worked with Amanda Palmer, Zoe Keating wrote the foreword of this book. I know these women extremely well that the industry loves to prop up and be like, be like, Zoe, Zoe's got it right. She's the only one of the only artists I've ever met that doesn't need to read this book. But my point is, is if I'm finding money for national acts, let alone ones that the industry is holding up to be like, be like Julia, what about everyone else? So I will send you a copy of the book on page 133. I have uh, the revenue stream checklist and I have nine revenue streams that if you are, writing and recording your music and you are not collecting on these, then you are missing out on income. And I almost, I I hesitate, like 
I didn't even want to put mechanical royalties in the book because I'm just like, if you want to go read a book on publishing, like go do that. I tried to um, cover everything, cover the entire industry in a hopefully easy to read book, but I did have to define mechanical royalties so I could explain um, how artists can release cover songs. But my point is, is, you know, there's nine, um, yeah, there's nine revenue streams. If you are recording, if you are writing and recording slash releasing music and back to music business programs, this is not a diss. This is, I would like to hold me the music business programs that are listening to, to this standard. If you have seniors graduating who cannot name these nine revenue streams, then we are failing those students. Perhaps. I don't know if I could name all nine though. Try. And, and by the way, I, I, I wouldn't be able to without looking. I, I yeah. never can. So these are all musical things right yeah actually i'll just read them to you yeah okay cool (laughs) distribution direct to fan distribution which i consider separate right um absolutely performing rights organization so obviously ascap bmi etc yeah publishing sound exchange patreon which by the way i do like the patreon people but they do not seem excited enough that they are like the only like company that i list as a revenue stream like that's you know, everything else is like, yeah. you know, anyway, online merchandise, live yeah. performances and webcasts, which I have as one category and live merchandise. Yeah. And then I have on the next page, I have bonus revenue streams. So the first thing I want to teach people is like, okay, if you are writing and recording slash releasing music, like, and you are not collecting on all these things, then you're missing money. If you want to do you know, for bonus stuff like VIP live show offerings, live recordings, catalog releases on vinyl. Like I've got a whole bunch of stuff like that, but I just want to teach people at their core, like the stuff that they're missing. And the other thing I did, um, is I have a spread, a a Google spreadsheet in the book that anyone can access that I literally created for our artists because twofold one, one of them was in debt when we took her on and was paying New York City rent. And so I needed to show her, I needed to do projections. I needed to be like, this is how much you can, you know, count on making based on your catalog and, and whatever. I mean, she may have a hit album right now. So that's freaking yeah. awesome. But at the time we had to get her out of debt. And then- Oh yeah, I've been through that with Arter. Right. And then the other part of that spreadsheet is if there is a blank column- you are missing money. And that's how I was able to find um, some some money for Julia as well. So not really questions in there, but I'll send this to you. And I mean, I literally, I'm, again, I'm not doing a lot of manage, management right now, but um, when I was, I would look at my own book and be like, okay, did the artists collect on everything this month, this quarter, whatever. And like, maybe this is not very sexy and um, the hi-fi people have been really good to me. And I, and I do appreciate that, but that is another percentage, right? Like I love yeah. their technology and what they're doing, but that's 5%. So I know it's only if you're taking a loan from them. I, I'm, I'm just using the technology to track the information, not to necessarily then utilize a loan from them as well. That is really good to know. So how do they monetize if you don't take a loan? Do you know, not to put you on the spot. They, yeah, I, I, I sort of know, and I, I just don't know how much I should say or not say, but like, I, I believe they're going to build more bolt-on businesses over the years. So they, they want people to sign up. They don't, that's kind of, you know, a funnel to try to get people to pay them or not pay them, but to take loans and, you know, Got charge it. a percentage. But they're, they're, I have some ideas that I'll, 
I'll share with you not on here because <laughs> they're not necessarily roadmap ideas for them, but I have some awesome ideas of what I think they could do with their company that I've shared with them. Well, that's great because <laughs> full transparency, they pitched themselves to be on this podcast. And I was like, Okay, I'm the nerd teaching you, teaching artists the long algebra. And this is what I proposed to them. I'm like, we could do a concert episode where I'm like, okay, I already taught you the long algebra way. And now I'm going to teach you the shortcut way. But I think it's really, even though it's like annoying in school when that happens, like, oh, why didn't they just teach us the shortcut first? I do think it's important to understand these things. So that is really exciting to me that... um, I guess maybe you can go work with them. Maybe that's just for special people like Randy, but it's it's not necessarily 5%. So please explore Hi-Fi. Um, but also yeah. feel free to review page 133 to double check your revenue streams as well. Yeah, no, but the thing is, is you need both. What, what Hi-Fi does is a portion of it. They're not going to cover all your revenue streams, or right. at least today, hopefully they could eventually. But that still holds up to your book. It just... You may have a spot where you can now track six of your revenue streams or seven of your revenue streams. It makes your process of checking up on them easier. It's not a shortcut. The only shortcut is that they're in one spot and it's you can do it quicker, but you're not cutting the line or cheating in any way by doing that. But the one thing I'll say about HiFi that I keep harassing them on, but I only want to say so much, is they have so much data if you utilize them and they're using their platform properly totally. that they should be able to figure out where royalties are missing I love in addition to where they're owed. Yep. And if they start employing AI on top of that, I think the sky's the limit of where they could go. The AI is way better than my Google spreadsheet. But for now, people, you can look at the Google spreadsheet. And it's the, we're saying the same thing. Like we want to make yeah. it easy so you know where you're missing money so you can go and get it. Exactly. Awesome. Okay. So um, on to the final chapter of uh, the book slash the title of this episode, which I keep saying, when do I need an attorney, business manager, and or a manager defining an artist traditional team? And it's interesting that you mentioned Don Passman, who kindly was a guest on this podcast. Um, So I interviewed him right before the pandemic. And uh, I was like, oh, I should reread the latest version of his book before I do. And what's interesting, it makes complete sense, is, okay, so my last chapter is defining an artist's traditional team, but that's his first chapter. And the first edition of that book came out in 1991 or whatever. So I think that's super interesting. I feel like, okay, here's all the stuff you can do on your own. Now you can explore having a team. And then if you have a team... You know, that's what, what Don's book is for. Um, Yeah, the business has completely changed. Now you can do almost all of it yourself and you may one day need a team, but you may not. Back then it started with a team and without it, you had nothing. A hundred percent. So do all of your artists have an attorney? Um, No, that should be an easy question. (laughs) I believe so. You know, it's, it's one of those weird things where, you know, there's somebody who is definitely on paper, the attorney for everyone. Right. Well, and the reason I open with that team member, and again, we haven't been to in-person conferences in a while, but I used to see way too many artists at conferences that were like, this is my attorney, or I have an attorney. I'm like, because you paid them a retainer, like not to be a jerk, you know? So that's why I think, do you need an attorney? I mean, when does an artist actually need an attorney besides just paying someone to come to conferences with them? You don't need an attorney until you need them to do something for you, like review a contract. That's right. 
Exactly. Yeah. And sometimes yeah. an attorney may find you and love your music and want to shop you for free other than getting a commission if they get you a deal. And that's the only reason to have a lawyer early on. Right. And even that, like, I guess that's still happening. Like attorneys shopping for deals yeah. and early, and that's your only team member, you know? Yeah. I can't imagine it happens much anymore, right. but like, but in the way it goes, the way I look at it is a publicist can still do that. Anyone can do that. Like I remember when, um, I'm forgetting his last name, but Steven who worked a big hassle for years. Oh yeah worked with Steel Train. He loved Steel Train. He was just such a believer. He knew Jack was a star, right. which he clearly is. And he did everything for him. And he was just the publicist. So you do have those people who are in a role that can do more than what they're supposed to do. So like that's kind of where I look at a lawyer in that sense. Like they can be anyone on the team can be doing that. Also huge shout out to Steven who was so nice to me at the first Bonnaroo ever when I was an intern. So love him. Why can't I remember his last it's, name? It's I shared an office with him for like five years. It's something because it's long and it begins with a T. I was trying to Google it. It's it's Stephen Trachtenberg. Yeah, I don't think it's Trachtenberg. It's like Trachtenbroit or something. Sorry, oh we God. love All you, right, Stephen. We probably sorry, Stephen. We love you. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Do all of your clients have business managers? Um, for the most part, yes. I have one that has sort of a business manager. What what is what I would say has it a has like a bookkeeper yeah, exactly. kind of accountant, but not really a full on business manager. Totally. But she works really hard and cares a lot. I just don't know that I would necessarily call it a business manager per se. And what? Do but business, that's not to knock her. Yeah, for sure. And what do business managers do? As I described before, that a manager is the CEO of a corporation. The business manager is the CFO of a corporation. They should be overseeing. All the revenue, you know, the managers looking at the revenue streams, but the business manager should be analyzing them, making sure that you're planning for taxes properly with how that money's coming in, dealing with tax returns, potentially in all 50 states, potentially filing tax returns in multiple countries if you're touring globally. They should be paying the artist's bills. The manager should never have access and control of an artist's bank account. One of the great things about having both a manager and a business manager is we can be friendly, but still a little bit adversarial and just kind of looking over each other's shoulders to make sure neither one is screwing the artist. I've made it a point with every artist I've ever worked with that I will suggest a few business managers that I think will be good, but I always want the artist to pick their own business manager because that business manager should be double checking that I'm not screwing the artist. That's great. I love that. And also, um, just to backtrack quickly, with attorney, we kind of said this. I would also add, you need an attorney if if you're dealing with any of your rights. So obviously, record company, publishing, and definitely a management contract as well. And um, just side note on that. Well, if you have one. If you have a management yeah, contract. Well, let's talk about that in a second. But um, yeah, I, I just was going, I, I, I just witnessed this from afar where an, an awesome young manager is like, contract, contract, we need a contract. I was like, uh, okay, you don't, but we'll talk about that in a second. But um, what I'm trying to say is, does the artist have an attorney? And the answer was no. And I was like, you can't just hand them a freaking management ag agreement when they don't have an attorney. Like, that's shit. I mean, yeah. he wasn't trying to be shitty, but um, 
that's mal that's business malpractice yeah exactly and even though like she was totally well intended right she's like okay we're gonna be exactly. normal and we're gonna do this right and i'm just like dude they're not represented like you you need an attorney they need an attorney so let's let's get into that um so you said like if there is a contract or whatever so what what are your thoughts and feelings on management contracts yeah well kind of segueing from the part before to this is a manager's job is to protect an artist from everyone, including themselves. Yeah. So it's just important to keep that in mind that you want to make sure you don't harm the artist. You may harm the artist accidentally. And having somebody who, where there's checks and balances can help you to make sure that you don't make a mistake that could damage your long-term relationship. But now, what was the other question? What are your thoughts on management agreements slash contracts? I think a guideline of deal terms is essential. That can be a napkin, that could be an email, that could be a videotaped conversation, which I guess is <laughs> technically, with, that's on YouTube of me and under oath that anyone can listen to and find out what our agreement is. And I honestly don't even remember yeah. to some degree other than it's, you know, my business manager kind of knows how to pay me, but, or I should say their business manager, but, you know, there, there really isn't a right or wrong answer to that. The only thing that I think is essential in a management agreement between artist and manager is an understanding and an agreement to what the payment terms are nice. and how and why. It doesn't need to be a 50-page document or a five-page document. It should be, okay, you're getting paid 10%, 15%, 20%. You're getting paid on gross or net. You know, is it, you know, are you getting a different rate on publishing versus touring? Like, there's different ways. For the most part, most managers are a flat percentage across everything, but then there's a lot that are slightly different. Yep. With Under Oath, for instance, they had six band members for most of their albums. Then they had a hired hand and five band members. So my management agreement changed slightly, which I still don't understand why to this day, but it just did. Right. When they had five members and not six, now they have six again and it reverted back to the other way. But for the record, that was five members mm -hmm. <laughs> differently than the one with six. And I literally, I don't think I could tell you or the band could tell you anymore why it's that way, but it was what was important to the band at the time. And I don't care. <laughs> and I don't think they care. So it is what it is. I make slightly less on one record for some reason, <laughs> right. but it's fine. Exactly. So I think, well, I agree with everything you said, except maybe move beyond the napkin stage. I would say definitely at least put it in an email and then, you know, we'll talk about it, to, you know. Yeah, I agree. An email is honestly, an, if you write it on a napkin, take a picture and then email it to everybody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like there needs, because there needs to be something where everybody has a copy. Yeah. And it's like, it doesn't necessarily need to be a formal contract. And I've had formal contracts with all my artists. One of my artists who I've been with for 20 years, the starting line, I, um, I didn't have a contract with them. We had a handshake. Uh, another artist got in their ear and a couple of people got in their ear that I wasn't a good manager yes. and that I couldn't do certain things and that. They were never going to get a record deal with this record company that was interested in them because I wasn't a strong enough manager. The band fired me. Oh. And the first people to call them were the people from that record company that they thought I could never get them a deal with. Going, why are you firing him? We were looking forward to working with you and him. You really need him as a part of this. Mm -hmm. And they, they had my back, which is 
freaking amazing to this day. I'm thankful of Paula Ruskin at MCA Records. He was one of the people who was really had my back in that. But the band fired me, and then I flew. They fired me on my thirtieth birthday. Also. Never, and never forget it. <laughs> oh, never. Always give them shit about it to this day. Yeah. But I flew down and met with them and spent time with them and we worked through everything. And I said, look, you know, this was based on trust. You broke the trust. Now we need a contract. And we had a contract. I don't know how many years the contract lasted. It's literally still on my desk. I could look at it. It's in like a file thing on the side of my desk, but I don't care. I am almost positive the contract has long expired, but it doesn't matter. The trust has long been back and we've worked together for almost 20 years now. I love that. So let's break this down a little bit. First, um, you mentioned like terms as far as like a term length or whatever. Um, You know my attorney, Joyce Dollinger. She loves you. Yeah, of course. Yeah, Joyce is great. So when I I started my first company in 2008, um, I didn't really like the idea of like like a, a term length because I was like, Gosh, if someone wants to fire me, I don't want them to be like counting down the days till we can get rid of Emily or whatever. So um, we did, I, 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 I'm sure other people have done this, but I, I think I made it up. But then Joyce came up with the phrase mirrored term. I mean, now I'm getting into post term, but basically like, yeah. you can fire us at any time. I mean, I think there's like a 30 day thing in there, but who cares? Like you can fire us at any time. But as far as post term works, um, do you want to define what post term is? Yeah, and interestingly, I don't have any post-term things in any of my agreements with my band. But post-term means you helped create an artist's career. And in exchange for that, they should pay you a percentage of commissions after you're done working with that. And it could mean that for the next three years, there's a sunset clause, which means you get a certain percentage each year and it decreases each year as you sunset out of that relationship. But sometimes it could be the artist fires you and there's things that you worked on that are still in the pipeline to happen and you should be paid on that work because you did the work, but the money didn't come in yet. So there's lots of different ways to look at it. And I'll give one real-time example that I just, I love sharing the story and I'll use their name too because I don't think he'll be offended. I managed a band called Bayside for a couple of years. Still friends with them. Like they weren't happy. I wasn't happy they fired me and we agreed in the phone conversation that this was like October or November, I would be paid on everything that was earned through the end of the year and everything the following year I wouldn't be paid on. And like four weeks went by and Anthony, the singer, the band called me up and there was like their online store did better than expected that month. And he called me kind of mad and was like, do you really think you deserve this money from the online store? You didn't do a damn thing. You know, you're not a manager anymore. And now you're getting paid on this. And I said to him, I said, Anthony, you're absolutely right. I do not deserve a dime from the online store. But remember that whole tour that I built for you for next year that I'm not taking a dime from? Yeah. Would you rather pay me for the thing I did a lot of work on or the thing that I did nothing for? He's like, you're right. All good. And that was the end of the conversation. Yeah. And literally I say this not to knock him, but we're friends to this day. We have like hour long conversations about stuff and, you know, like we, we fully support each other. So like these things don't have to be nasty. He was heated. He was like, you're not, you shouldn't get paid on this. And he was right. I shouldn't, but he wasn't thinking of the big picture. And sometimes we miss the big picture in these things and it's important to think about it. 
Which is why, to make it clear, you and I are both saying, agree to the terms, put them down in writing. You know, we're kind of like, you know, whatever about contracts, because, you know, when you start working with an artist, um, and this is why we don't have contracts with the two artists we've taken on the most recently is, like I said, one was in debt when we took her on. And so I'm like, she can't even afford an attorney to do a management agreement. I'm not going to, you know, give her an agreement, right? So it's just like, okay, that just saved everyone a few thousand dollars, but we still need to agree to the terms and put it in writing and and how we're working together. So what Joyce and I have done for post-term is, um, you know, the old school way was uh, the word perpetuity, right? And I I would consider that kind of a dirty word. I was like, oh, gross. Like, who am I to be, you know, commissioning on them forever. Although side note, there are artists (laughs) that are definitely benefiting on things for the rest of their lives that I set up, but it is what it is. I stand stand by, I stand by what I'm about to say. So what we came up with is called a mirrored term. Um, you could fire me at any time, but I would get post-term on the stuff that I worked on for as long as I worked on the artist. So if I manage them a year, I would get a year of post-term. If it was five years, five years. And every artist has always been cool with that because... It was. I should add that to my agreements with Under Earth on the starting line. There you go. Heck, I've been with them for twenty years. I'm good for another twenty yeah. then. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, talk about that stuff up front. Talk about um, what the commission rate is. Are, you obviously don't have to get into specifics about your clients. Are you comfortable talking about what you know kind of commission rates are? Yeah, I mean, for the most part, most commissions are somewhere between fifteen and twenty percent. You know, being totally transparent with under oath, my commission, I have to do the math, but it's like 14.625% or something. There's six members of the band and we split it up in a way where everything's split by a seventh. Yep. And I'm not a seventh owner of the company, but the band had an issue with the manager making more than that. Totally. And I thought that was fair. I thought it was a valid concern. So we came up with a number where we're equal rather than me being greater than. If I was 15%, that'd be greater than. Love that. Yeah. Um, and then also, I, I, I'd be curious how you handle this, but it may, and I'm sure it is a lot easier with at venue. Um, we've often offered uh, artists half gross commission on merch to save everyone um, the hassle of deducting cost of goods sold and and doing a full commission on the net. Do you do anything with merch to save time? I've done it lots of different ways over the years. At this point, how I do it, it's just, it's commission on the net at the end of the tour. Totally. So, you know, whatever, whatever check after all bills are paid for the merch seller, merch rate, literally everything. It's just off the net. I kind of undersell, undercut myself compared to what some of the industry norms are. But I think that also speaks to the longevity of the relationships I have with my artists. I'm not trying to squeeze out every dime as long as I can make a living and take care of myself and my family and they can survive. It works for me. I don't think you are undercutting because when we took on Julia, and again, she's super open about stuff, so she'd be completely fine with me sharing this. I was like, okay, we can either do 7.5% of the gross on merch or we can do 15% of the net. And I'm yeah. going to suggest 7.5% of the gross because that's going to save everyone a lot of time and math. And she wanted to look at the numbers. So we ran both yeah. sets of numbers on the tour and they were 
basically the same. So she's like, I'm totally cool with the 7.5 of gross because she knew it just saved everyone time. Oh, I used to have a spreadsheet with the starting line years ago that literally calculated to the cent on each show what my commission was off the merch. It just like broke down everything. So you put in like one shirt and you would see how it all broke down. It's just too much work. Yeah, exactly. So she's, she's been cool with that. That's worked uh, really well. Um, Also, this came up with um, some younger managers recently who were like, Oh, well, what if they do a solo project? Um, So your email, in my opinion, or napkin with a photograph um, should make it clear that management covers all entertainment related activities for both solo members and the group. My deal really doesn't. It should, and it doesn't, and it annoys me at times. But, you know, it, there, there's a million different reasons on mine why that makes sense and doesn't make sense, though, yeah. too. So, like, I, it, where I've kind of taken it to is where I'm involved. Right. So, like, the drummer from Under Oath is a songwriter, and, you know, I'm helping to work on his songwriting career. So that... I should be paid on. But if he did all the songwriting and needed to hire a different person to run all that for him, I shouldn't be paid on. Yeah. And which is just a reminder, every, every relationship, in my opinion, should be custom, right? Like every situation is, is unique. Exactly what you're saying, because, you know, what I'm describing is a newer manager who said to me recently, like, oh my gosh, I just did all this work. And now they just start a new project and I don't get anything. And I'm like, and, and he's still managing like the first project. I'm like, well, right. Yeah. That's why if you add this sentence, <laughs> then they're clear about that. You're clear about that. But also like it, it can work a few ways. Like I've never spoken publicly about this, but I started managing Brennan Benson right after the second Tours album. And so yeah. you know, their team, of course, was like, you you touch nothing of Tours, right? I'm like, yeah. oh, that's fine. I get it. But... I don't, I, we must've worked this in. I, I, I'm kind of impressed. We had the foresight. I said, but what if I find money and they're like, okay, yeah, yeah. you can commission on that. Well, I, ended up yeah, finding some if, money. <laughs> there you go. And what if you end up doing work around it? It's like, as, and the great thing is when you have good relationships that aren't adversarial, yeah. it works. Like maybe suddenly you have to do a lot of work around Brendan and the raconteurs. You should be paid something because of that. And that's, that's just how all my relationships have been. I I have one artist like vacationer that I was the co-manager on it. Then I wasn't, then someone else was, then he brought me back in on it. I'm the co-manager again. And it's like the band's literally been like passed around over time, but it's made sense for the band. And that's all that matters at the end of the day. Exactly. And then also in your photographed napkin agreement slash email. um, Actually, this starts with the conversation, right? You you agree to these terms verbally and then you document it. But let them know you'll be invoicing monthly, quarterly, whatever you've decided on. So that is clear as well, which which really fundamentally is what you said first when we started talking about this. Yeah. And the way I've been paid by most of my artists these days, and it's changed over time. When I was a younger manager and I couldn't afford to keep the lights on, it was monthly and it had to be. I just couldn't do it any other way. Now it's just when the money comes in, the business manager pays it out and I get my cut when the business, just when the band gets paid, I get paid. Yep. 
And that's and why we're not so big. But, sorry to interrupt, but that's why we're not so big, bad, and scary. You know, like I think I've, I've actually gotten in trouble for saying this, but sometimes. But I think managers can get a bad, you know, rap sometimes or rep or whatever because. And I get it, right? There is these old school, pre-digital, non-transparent horror stories. But I get really bummed when I hear like, oh, they're signing with a manager. I hope they know what they're signing. Well, yes, of course. That's why we're saying get an attorney if you're signing a management agreement. But like, I obviously, you, you and I know better than anyone, like how much work it is. I mean, how much literal blood, sweat, and tears it is. So man, if someone wants to work with you, especially in the modern music industry where there's just like like so many facets, so many components. Like, I think that's exciting if someone wants to work with you on commission. I don't think that should be feared. Exactly, because we're all partners. Yes, for sure. So, okay, a couple more things, and then I will let you go. Um, I mean, we've kind of touched on this, but I, I know you and I get this question a lot. So, like, how does an artist go about getting a manager? When is the right time? What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, and I touched on this earlier in the conversation. I think you need a manager when you can no longer do the work all by That's yourself. Right. When you're at a point where you're so overwhelmed just keeping up that you don't have time to be an artist anymore. That's when I think you need a manager. Because if you have a manager earlier than that, you don't understand the work that a manager does. Just like I talked about earlier, me getting in the van and understanding what the artist does. The artist has to also understand what the manager does. And if they don't fully understand that, it just doesn't work. I've had artists that I've worked with who don't understand the work involved and their careers didn't work because they had unrealistic expectations. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And that's exactly why, again, this chapter is last, right? Because there's all these things you know, you can do on your own. And again, if, if someone comes along, I'm biased myself, right? Like a 20 year old college student who's on a, um, on a professional path. I think that's really important as well. Cause otherwise it could yeah. be like stalker, sycophant, friendager, whatever yeah. that is not going to re- represent you well. But, um, yeah. So like manager, I, I feel managers are not miracle workers. You know, I think that, that's also part of the problem. Like there can be that stereotype. Okay. So my business partner, Melissa Garcia asks an excellent question when we're about to take on an artist. Like usually I'm like ready to go. Like they've checked. Actually, you mentioned your boxes. I'll I'll mention mine. Mine are for management. Do we love, they're very similar. Do we love the music? Um, (laughs) I haven't been a manager in a while. I know one is we don't want to, um, work harder than you. We don't want to care more than you. Yeah. You know, if, if we go to your social media and you haven't updated in months, like it kind of shows you're not really putting the effort in. And then the no asshole, the no asshole rule. So I'm usually like ready to oh, go yeah. after that. Everything's feeling good. We've had meetings and stuff, but then Melissa asks a really important question. Have you had management before? And if the answer is yes, she loves that because it, she knows we're good at what we do and it has a frame of reference. They know it's a working relationship. If the answer is no, that's not a good situation because they most likely have a stereotype in their brain of what their manager is going to be like and what they're going to do for them. So what I'm trying to say is like, we are, in my opinion, we are not miracle workers. And you've definitely said this throughout the podcast. Um, We are partners. We are team members. Yeah. So there was a question in there somewhere, but 
<laughs> I'll just say you're right. Thank you. I appreciate that. So, yeah. I mean, again, that's why this chapter is last, right? Because there's so many things you can do on your own. I'm not saying, we're not saying, like, you know, don't don't pick up a manager along the way. But, yeah, I, I mean, I'm sure you've been asked this a million times on panels. What what are manager? you know, when do I need a manager? Like, what, how do I get a manager? And it's like, well, do the first 11 chapters first is, is my response to that. Yeah. Exactly. And I mean, it's just so important to learn how to do it all yourself. Yeah. And after you've done that, it's it's time. I mean, one of my favorite stories of like talking to a band about wanting a manager was I met this band at the smaller music conference called the Launch Music Conference. Dude, you're like a god at that band. thing. Like, people love, <laughs> love, people love that, that conference. It's usually Joyce, my attorney Joyce, but people yeah. come back oh, from that Joyce. conference and they're like, Randy Nichols and Kevin Lyman are just amazing. So you get a lot, you make a lot happen there. So I did, I had one of my favorite experiences I've ever had at that conference. They had this thing where you sign up for a mentorship. And the first year I was there, this band stacked like pancakes signs up. To mentor, to mentor with me. Sit down, they ask a bunch of great questions, smart kids, taking notes, going through everything. You know, we kind of stayed in touch, but not really, you know, just kind of how you would hope someone from a conference would, a nice note once in a while, but nothing over the top. Next year, he signs up to have a mentorship session with me again. And it's my favorite thing that's ever happened. He goes, so I did everything you told me and it worked, what's next? And as you know, speaking of these things and doing that, that just never happened. That never happened. That's amazing. I love that. And I fell in love with this kid because, and Kevin Lyman ended up giving him like a couple of weeks on the warp tour. He fell in love with him. And it was just like, this kid was like, I want to work. I want to learn how to do this. Tell me what I need to do and how I can do this. And I know he wanted me to be his manager too, but he understood that I wasn't ready. He didn't push me on that. And he used me for the information he could get out of me. And he used his time to talk about that rather than why I should be his manager. Yeah. And it's just so important. And the band, you know, only went so far, but their career absolutely grew. And I'm sure if you ask Joyce about this band, she'll tell you. Oh my gosh, I love them. And yeah. Exactly. (laughs) And they became the darling of this conference because everyone fell in love with them because they were looking for help taking it and it worked. Yeah. Like it's just, that's, that's all you could ask for. But and, go, go yeah. ahead. Go ahead. I don't even remember. Where I was well, going, you're exactly on. right. And I love that story. And, and you know, not nearly enough people do it, but don't forget chapter one, get your art together because you don't want to master chapters two through 12 or whatever. And then realize that your heart and soul isn't in your songwriting and music. Exactly. And this, this band, they were there. Their, their problem is they were a ska punk band. I think there's only so much room they had. And they met a lot of us after they'd been around, I think maybe a little too long. Mm-hmm. And we're getting a little older and didn't have the time or energy to put into it anymore. Got it. Okay, well, yeah. two last questions, and then I will let you get back to your life. But thank you so much for all this time, because this is really, really good stuff. Um, obviously tech has been a huge part of your career. Um, one, are you technical? And two, uh, tell me what you're working on now. I am not technical at all. I typically say I speak tech well enough to translate what artists want to the tech people and to explain the tech to the artist people. But I 
I cannot play the music and I cannot program the tech. And as far as projects that I'm involved in right now, I actually work full time for Moment House, which is the premium digital ticketed um, live experience company. They're just a leaps and bounds ahead of all the other live streaming companies. And after I did the Under Oath live streaming series, I had the opportunity to meet all the stakeholders from every major streaming company, as well as people like Amazon. All these huge companies all wanted to learn what we did. And I got to meet these companies. And Moment House's platform was just better than everyone else's. And they cared about design and influencing culture beyond just simply a website to host a stream. And as you've heard me talk about through this, merchandise was very important as well and building in merchandise sales for the platform. So I'm very involved with that company. We have a self-service platform on there where artists can sign up and host their own live streams using the same platform that like, we currently have a Halsey concert on sale on our platform. We had St. Vincent last week. You know, we have A-level talent using the platform on a regular basis. So I do that. And then I also consult for a handful of other startups. The one that I'm really excited about lately is a company called Propeller. Yeah. And mm -hmm. Propeller, yeah, Propeller brings musicians and causes together and helps artists, um, gather fan data while simultaneously supporting a cause and helping the cause to raise money. And it's, it's a perfect combo that I'm really proud of the work that um, that team does there. Sounds like you know who they are based on your yeah when I said it. So glad to hear you're a supporter. Well, I'm happy to hear you're, you're working with them too because, um, yeah, I, I know they were – because I put together a South By panel that they were on and obviously South By – it was like South by 2020. So it was yeah. online well. and I, I know they were kind of like, Oh my gosh, what are we going to do? Because they were all about um, activations at live shows. And in my head, I'm like, yeah. pivot. <laughs> um, yep. So it's kind of like they we've did. done that, which is great. Yeah. So yeah. And then other than that, I'm involved with tension division. Who's the creative agency that does all the artwork for 21 pilots and under oath and, um, Smashing Pumpkins and a bunch of other bands. I just helped them with a little bit of business development. Just, they're good friends of mine who I just like to help out. And um, yeah, I'm also consulting for a smaller music data startup called Immensity, which helps artists figure out how to better understand their data and take actions based on it. Awesome. Okay, last. And I think that's everything. <laughs> that's it. Um, yeah, I may be missing something. It happens. No, I love it. And I and I, I've I've been very similar in music and tech as well. I'm not technical. It's funny because like people in the industry consider you and I like music tech people, but people in tech would not consider you or I technical. So Exactly. Where they're music people. Yeah, exactly. I always consider myself like um a savvy user is how I would describe myself. Yeah. Completely. I agree. Which, not to be Same. biased, but that's super important, right? It's like you and I are going to know oh, what yeah, works and really what doesn't. Is. Exactly. So how do you find balance in your life amidst all of this? Because artist management can be 24-7. You're consulting on tech companies. Like, how, how do you find Randy time? Um, I'll let you know when I find it. I've been good at it. Up until I started working full-time for Moment House and managing, 
I was okay at it. I try at night to not look at my phone as much. I try to, you know, spend time with my kids. I have a six and eight year old and, you know, it just, I try to, you know, be in the moment with whatever I'm doing. It's the most important thing, whether that be work or family time is to be in the moment and not be pulled out of the moment to something else. That's great. You know, you did a good job in that in scheduling this interview. Um, you know, you're, it, if you recall, it was like, yeah. Do you want to share that? Yeah, absolutely. I said to you, I want to do this either first thing in the morning or end of the day. So I'm not distracted by other things and want to be able to focus and give you my focus to give you the proper time of day that you deserve. And it's, it's important to me, whatever I do, that I give people the time. The only other thing I'll share that I do for balance, but I just haven't been able to do it because I've been so busy and it's driving me crazy, but I surf. When I'm in the ocean, I forget about everything else that I'm doing and I'm just looking for the next wave and trying to figure out when to paddle and dealing with so many other things that I forget everything about work and it's just me and nature and figuring out what I need to do in that moment. I saw that. And I used to do open water swimming races around New York City. Unfortunately, the organization... Oh, wow. That's... Yeah. Well, I was was on a swimming scholarship, so it's not as as wacky and wild as it sounds, but... Um, That's still hard, though. Yeah. No, it it was hard. But um, my business partner at the time was like, no one can contact you when you're underwater. And I was like, that's not really why I'm doing it. That's a good point. So... Oh, completely. I went through an era where I loved flying. And I was terrified of flying for years. And then I began to love it because I needed to check out. And that was my moment to check out. Same. I, I'm, I'm not, I don't have a fear of flying, but I, that was what, that is absolutely why I loved flying for many, many years. I, I totally. Yeah. But I love being in the ocean. Like it, it just grounds me and centers me. And it's so important. It's so cool to know that you're doing open, open, open water swimming. There's, I have some friends out here who go out. I think every day, but certainly like every other day, I see them out there with their little buoys behind them swimming, you know, like a mile in the ocean in the morning. It's the like, they go out in like big groups together. Yeah, it's weird. I've been swimming at in in a pool at McCarran Park pool every day this summer. And um, I'm like, we used to have concerts here. And now I'm swimming last yeah. year. So <laughs> take what you can get. If you ever want to do some open ocean swimming, come out, come out this way. I will. I, I will definitely keep. Yeah. yeah Cause the, the organization I was doing it with um, in the city no longer exists. So I will definitely keep my eyes open for some long Island open water races. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Absolutely. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, Randy. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks. This was fun. Awesome. Anything else you want to add on management, the industry, where folks can find you? Yeah. Follow me on, um, I think, ForceMM at Twitter or Randy Nichols on LinkedIn. I always try to post good stuff on LinkedIn and, you know, share my opinions on news stories and stuff. So. Worth, worth following me there. And maybe you can be the first cold pitch artist Randy ever takes on if you listen to everything that he said on this podcast. Yeah, good, good luck. I haven't picked up an artist in like five or six years, so it's tough. Prove us wrong. Prove us wrong with your amazing yeah, art exactly. and knowledge. Yeah. Awesome. So that's a wrap. Right, thanks. Yeah, thanks, Randy. And that's a wrap for this episode of How to Build a Sustainable Music Career and Collect All Revenue Streams. Tune in next week for our final episode, Now and the Future. Thanks again to Randy. I'm at EMWizzle on Twitter, and we will catch you on the next and final episode. Thanks again.